Welcome to the podcast of Maranatha Ministries. I'm Rick Frank, Senior Pastor of Maranatha, and I pray you'll be blessed by today's message. You can access all of our church information by going to our website at www.mmchurch.com or on all social media by searching at mmchurch. And now be blessed by listening to today's message. But let's get into the Word of God first, shall we? We are in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm reading verses 1 through 6 here. The Apostle Paul writing says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So from this I'm going to be preaching part two of a message I've entitled, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. Let's have a word of prayer before we get into the message here today. Jesus, we love you. We magnify you. We thank you for your goodness and your blessings, Lord. We thank you for bringing each and every saint who is in this sanctuary here today, Lord. We thank you for everyone who's listening to this message online. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us your word, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your word today, to let it be imparted upon our spirit, Lord. We pray, Jesus, that you would anoint me and use me as a willing vessel to preach the word here. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said amen. amen. Let's give the Lord one more hand clap of praise here. All right, so as I had said, this is part two of a message I started two weeks ago. So just to very briefly recap, uh, I talked two weeks ago about the power of unity. We talked about what unity was and what unity is not. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. We do all have our differences. It's not about all being clones of one another. It's not all about being the same. It's about operating in harmony with one another, using those gifts and those talents and those strengths and weaknesses that God has given each and every one of us to work together in unity for the glory of the kingdom and for the glory of the body. And there's true power in unity. Um, but as powerful as unity is, it can so very quickly and very easily be washed away and destroyed by division in the blink of an eye. Now, I'm sure a lot of us have heard that expression, united we stand, divided we fall. It's been in movies, it's been in songs. It's been spoken by patriots throughout American history and world history. But the first use of this phrase actually dates back thousands of years to a fable by Aesop. And it goes like this. It says, a lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a-quarreling among themselves, and each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one, and soon made an end of all four. United we stand, divided we fall. So unity can very quickly be destroyed 
by division. And Jesus himself warns us of this. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. So with the dangers inherent in division, we need to be aware of where this division so often comes from, the cause of of division in so many circumstances, so that we can avoid falling into those pitfalls, falling into those traps, negatively affecting the unity of the body of Christ. And so often it's our humanity, it's our carnality, it's our flesh that causes these divisions. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 says to endeavor to keep or maintain the unity of the spirit. Different translations use the words keep or maintain, but whichever word they use, the concept is the same. This unity is the natural state of being spirit-led. It's not our job to create this unity of the spirit. It's our job to maintain it. It's our job to sustain it. And just as this is the case of the spirit, the opposite is true of the flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So these traits, envy, strife, division, they're they're endemic to the flesh, endemic to our carnality. And when we talk about our flesh, our carnal nature, we're talking about those natural characteristics that that come from our humanity, that aren't a a result of being spirit-led, but are found in each and every one of us. Because we all have a flesh nature, we all have a spiritual nature and a flesh nature, and we continue to battle this flesh battle this humanity until the day that these natural bodies that we inhabit return to the dust from which we were made. The flesh is self-interested, and that's probably the biggest hallmark of the flesh. It wants what it wants, it wants it now, and it doesn't really care about anything else. If we look at this word that is translated carnal in 1 Corinthians, it's sarkikos, and it means under the control of the animal appetites. And if you think of how animals operate, that's how they operate. They want what they want to meet their needs. Then that's, that's what their primary motivations are, even if they work with one another, even if they're in unity, as you could say. Wolves will hunt in a pack. Different animals will hunt in a pack. But the reason they're hunting in a pack is to make sure that there's food in their belly. They're not working towards some higher calling. They're not working towards some altruistic motive. They may be working together but the motivation behind that so-called unity is self-satisfaction, is self-gratification. And so often it's the same in the world when you see unity, because we do see examples of unity in the world. We see examples of unity outside the church. We see a great example of this in Genesis chapter 11, when man assembled on the plains of Shinar to build the Tower of Babel. And it says here, they were not acting in submission to God. They were acting to make a name for themselves. So even though they were working together, they were working in unity, this unity wasn't of God. This unity was of the flesh. And the problem with this self-centeredness, this self-focused nature of the flesh and the unity that comes from it, is it never lasts forever. Because you see, these self-centeredness, the selfish ambition, it leads to things like envy, like boasting, like jealousy like contentions. And then these generally evolve into things like strife, resentment, offense. How many times do you see that in a group of people? Always. You always see it. And when this offense, this strife, this resentment is allowed to fester and continue, it ends up destroying unity from within. James chapter 3 verse 16 says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder 
and every vile practice. There will be disorder. It is inevitable. So we need to make sure that we don't succumb to the draw of the flesh, those calls of our carnal nature to act with self-centeredness. Instead, we need to strive to follow the example that Christ gave us because he gave us a blueprint to follow. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We need to embody these traits of gentleness, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, patience, bearing with one another in love. And if there's anybody who in the eyes of the world would have been justified in feeling prideful and feeling puffed up, it would have been Jesus. Because we're not just talking about a king here. We're talking about the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So in the eyes of the world, Jesus would have had a good reason to feel pretty good about himself, to act puffed up, to not act in gentleness and lowliness. But that's not what he did. He walked in absolute lowliness, absolute gentleness. He was the true embodiment of true sacrificial love. There's no better example of love and humility than we see in Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this word that we translate to robbery here actually means to deem something a prize or something to be seized upon. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that Jesus didn't seize upon the fact, he didn't cling to the fact that he is God manifest in the flesh in order to avoid the suffering, the humiliation, the shame, the scorn, the pain that he knew he was going to feel. He knew it was coming. But he didn't cling to that. Instead, he made himself in the form not only of a man, but as one of the lowest possible man you could be, a bondservant. The lowest social class besides a slave. He wasn't a wealthy landowner. He put himself at the bottom of the totem pole. And he gave us the ultimate example of humility. Because again, he knew full well what was coming. He knew full well the scorn, the shame, the pain, the anguish that he was going to experience. And he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, sorrowful and deeply distressed, the Bible says, on the eve of his crucifixion. But instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So there's no better example of humility, no better example of lowliness, of self-sacrifice, than we see from Jesus himself. And there's also no better example of someone who would, again, in the eyes of the world, probably be justified in feeling resentful, feeling offended. Because over the span of one week, seven days, Jesus went from the triumphal entry, entering the city with the crowds chanting, Hosanna in the highest! To seven days later, those same crowds chanting, let him be crucified. You want to talk about getting stabbed in the back and getting turned on. There's no better example than that. 
But Jesus didn't harbor a grudge. He didn't bury resentment deep within him. No, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And listen, when those times come, when we are offended and wronged, and those times will come, I can promise you that. We are in the church, we're in the body of Christ, but the body is made up of a bunch of humans. None of us is perfect. There's going to be times when offense comes, when we feel like we're wronged, when we may wrong somebody else and not even realize we did it. So offense is going to come. But we need to resist the urge to hold on to that offense, to cling to it. We can't succumb to that. We can't refuse to forgive because somebody hasn't earned our forgiveness. They haven't done enough to deserve our forgiveness. Because the fact of the matter is there's going to be a lot of people who never in your eyes deserve your forgiveness. If we read Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 it says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Because the fact of the matter is none of us is worthy of Christ's forgiveness. None of us has earned it, and nor can we ever. But he forgives us because of his grace, not because of our works, because of his abounding grace. And we need to approach forgiveness with that same mindset, with that same grace. We need to remember that forgiveness isn't about the other person. It's about us. If you refuse to forgive, if you hold on to offenses and resentments, it's your walk with God that eventually suffers. It's not the other person. You're the one who stumbles. The word offense literally means an act of stumbling or a stumbling block. When you go through the woods, go on a hike, a walk, I'm sure many of us have been there. You're strolling along on that beautiful trail on autumn day, and all of a sudden your foot catches that root that's under the leaves stringing across the trail. And you go tumbling forward. In a literal sense, that root is an offense. It's a stumbling block. But you see, that stumbling block caused you to stumble. That root's still there. The root hasn't changed. It, this doesn't have anything to do with the root. It has to do with us and our walk with God. Thank you, Jesus. Someone once wrote that keeping an offense is like drinking a poison and then expecting someone else to die from it. Which is true, if you think about it. Keeping an offense is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die from it. Amen. That's right. I'm not a huge social media guy, I'll be honest, but I do pop onto Twitter once in a while, I will confess. And I, a lot of the people I follow are pastors, evangelists, things of that nature. And there was a pastor from Pittsburgh who posted an anecdote this last week that I thought was appropriate, and I wanted to share it here because I think it really speaks to the heart of what we're talking about. And he talked about the fact that during World War II, the American, the British Air Forces just carpet-bombed continental Germany, Nazi Germany, with tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of bombs to try to bring the Nazi war machine to its heels, which thankfully they finally did. And most of these bombs exploded when they were dropped, but some of them didn't. Some of these bombs landed, they stayed active, but they didn't explode. And what happened over time 
as the years went on after the war, is these bombs would sink down into the mud. They'd be covered with dirt, they'd be covered with other things, they'd be built up upon. So then if you looked at this area 5, 10, 15 years later, everything would look fine. You wouldn't see a bomb sitting there. You'd see a, a nice new apartment block. You'd see a, a beautiful grassy field, whatever it may be. But you wouldn't see a bomb sitting there. But despite the fact that everything looked fine, the reality was far from the truth. Because underneath the surface, that bomb was still ticking. It might sit there for a while. It might sit there for 15, 20, 30, 50 years. Who knows how long? But eventually what happens, and we hear about this sometimes, somebody goes to dig, somebody goes to build something new, that soil is disturbed, and that bomb goes off. 50 years after the fact, everything looked fine, nobody saw it coming. But that bomb was still sitting underneath the surface, and so often, it's the same thing with us. If we bury these offenses within us, these resentments within us, we may say we're fine, we may even trick ourselves into thinking we're fine. I know this because I've done it many times. I tell myself, no, I'm not offended. I'm over it. That doesn't bother me. And you know what? In the moment, I don't see that it's bothering me. But that bomb's under the surface, sinking a little bit lower and a little bit lower, but it's still there. And then 10 years later, something gets drudged up. That soil gets disturbed. And if we're not careful, that bomb can go off. And it ends up damaging us. It damages those around us. It damages the unity of the body. So we got to make sure that we don't allow these resentments, these offenses to sink deep within us. Now look, it's only natural to get angry in the moment. We all get angry. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 to 27 20, verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. So the fact that you can be angry and do not sin means that it's not the anger that's the sin. It may be how you act in anger, maybe how you react, but the anger in and of itself in the moment isn't a sin. But the Bible goes on to say two things. First, it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, get over it and get over it pretty quickly. Don't let it sit there and fester and sink deep within you and let that resentment grow and build over time. And then it says, nor give place to the devil. Because you better believe that when the enemy sees somebody clinging to offense, clinging to resentment, he sees a bullseye. He sees a target. Because the enemy knows full well the power of unity in the body of Christ. And he's a purveyor of rebellion by his very nature. Lucifer was chief among the heavenly hosts, yet that wasn't enough to appease him. Yet he still exalted himself above God. Yet he still cleaved towards rebellion. He's a rebel by his very nature, and he loves to divide. That's what his attacks serve to do. They aim to divide us from God, or they aim to divide us from one another. That's what the devil wants to do. You see, there's strength in numbers. When the sheep are together in unity under the watchful eye of a shepherd, they're safe from attack. They're protected. But just like we saw in that fable that I started off with, when the oxen were together, they were fine. When they're drawn off one by one, a quarreling with one another, that's when they were targets. That's when they were picked off. 
And it was easy pickings for the line at that point, isolating them one by one. And it's no coincidence that the same book of Ephesians that talks about maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that same book that I've quoted so many times over these two weeks, also talks about how we are to defend ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. I'm going to read this. I'm not going to put it up because it's long, but I am going to read it. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm starting with verse 10 here. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Those aren't the battles we're concerned with. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Church, we need to put on the whole armor of God. And we need to make sure we put on the armor of God. Notice that Paul says that twice. We need to put it on. Because if you just leave the armor sitting on a rack in the corner of your room, it's not going to do any good. Just because you come to God doesn't mean you can kick back, put your feet up, and expect him to solve all your problems while you go on living your life the way you did yesterday. That's not the way it works. We need to clad ourselves in the armor of God. We need to put on that armor. We need to put it on. And we need to understand, too, that God didn't just give us a suit of armor with no offensive weapons. Sometimes they like to say in sports, the best defense is a good offense. And God gave us a weapon. Now we need to take it out of the hilt, take it out of the sheath. The sword doesn't do any good if it's sitting on your hip. So we need to know how to wield it. But he gave us his word as a weapon against the enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought, every thought, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we've got to use the word as our sword, as our weapon, because the devil is powerless against the word of God. He has no counter for the word of God. You see, the devil's a liar. He's the ultimate liar. And the word of God is the ultimate truth. And that's the best way to put a liar in their place. They can spin it however they want, but they can't argue with the truth. There's no argument against that. 
Thank you, Jesus. And Jesus showed us firsthand the power of his word, and he did it intentionally. Because when Jesus was drawn out to the wilderness early on in his earthly ministry, he was tempted three times by the devil. Now we're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about God manifest in the flesh. He could have very easily said, Satan, away from me, right off the rip. But he didn't do that. Instead, he faced three temptations, and each one of those temptations, he rebuked, he rebutted, with the word of God. And he did this to show us the power of his word, to show us that the devil has no answer. He can try to spin it however he wants, but he can't light a candle to the word of God. And finally, church, as I close here, if we ensure that we bind together, that we draw together in unity, that we approach one another with a humble heart, with a heart of long-suffering, of patience, of love, if we don't cling to offenses, cling to resentment, but forgive one another, regardless of circumstances, if we submit to God and we put on the whole armor of God, we will emerge victorious against the enemy, and we will remain united. And when we are united, church, when the body is working in concert with one another, when the orchestra is all playing and all the instruments are in harmony, and they're all in submission to the conductor. What a powerful thing it is. It's tough for us to grasp the true power of unity, but we can sort of get a glimpse at it when we look again at the Tower of Babel. You see, God looked upon the people building the tower, and he said, indeed the people are one. They're unified, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Nothing that they propose to do. If there's such power in unity when people aren't working towards the will of God, imagine the power that comes from our unity when we're in submission to Christ. The Word of God says one can chase a thousand and two can put ten thousand to flight. If one can chase a thousand and two can put ten thousand to flight, what can a hundred do? What can a thousand do? What can the entire body of believers across this country and across this world do? We can do the work of God. We can spread the gospel with boldness, with confidence, as the believers did in the book of Acts in the early church. And I leave you finally with these words that Jesus himself prayed. In John chapter 17, on the eve of his crucifixion, he said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Church, if we bind together in unity, putting aside our differences, bearing with one another in love, forgiving one another, fulfilling that which God called us to do and resisting the attacks of the enemy. The sky is the limit for what we can accomplish as a body. Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Ministries podcast. If this message touched you, please make sure to subscribe for more sermons from Pastor Frank and the ministry team here at Maranatha. 
as well as follow us on our social media platforms. We are located in Schenectady, New York, and if you are in the area, we invite you to join us during our weekly Sunday service starting at 10.30 a.m. We look forward to you joining us again next week for another anointed message. Thank you, and God bless.